On Tuesday night, a very strange thing happened. Members of North Carolina's state legislature stayed at work late to pass new abortion restrictions. These are restrictions voters don't seem to want. Even so, the bill moved from thought experiment to settled law with remarkable speed. And what was crazy about it is that it was literally just shy, hours shy of being two weeks to the day that the bill was introduced to the public. Rebecca Kreitzer was watching as legislators took to the floor of the state house to argue about all this. She teaches policy and political science at UNC. The House will come back to order. Technically, what happened Tuesday night was considered a debate. Mr. Speaker, I move that the House... The House passed Senate Bill 20, Care for Women, Children, and Families Act. Not would you characterize what took place last night as a debate? I would not characterize what happened in the House or the Senate last night as a debate. Um, there were actually not very many proponents of the bill that spoke. A couple of them did. Uh, but there wasn't really debate or listening or engagement with the issue. The people who did speak at length were Democrats. For them... This bill was a 12-week abortion ban. Clear and simple. And the Democratic governor had already vetoed it once. Legislators got up and told stories about their own experiences with abortion, including a representative who was also a nurse who said she'd had three unviable pregnancies that she'd needed to terminate. This was the best decision for us. Not for all of us. For us. When I read this language of Senate Bill 20, all I see is the removal of the God-given right for myself and folks like me to make decisions for ourselves. That's all I see. Republicans, on the other hand, wanted credit for enacting something slightly less draconian than their colleagues in other states. Governor Cooper has said this bill is an effective ban on access to abortion in North Carolina. That is not true. This is no ban. Senate Bill 20 limits elective abortion after 12 weeks and provides important exceptions. Another myth is that Senate The bill Speaker pro tem Sarah Stevens she said this is no ban on abortion. Ah, uh, yes. Is that true? That's an extraordinarily disingenuous argument because, of course, this bill, this new law, really does restrict abortion substantially, especially to people in rural areas, making it out of reach for them. So it's, it, is, it is essentially a ban. Listening to these Republican lawmakers, you might get the idea that their new law was something of a compromise. But Rebecca says compromise is the wrong word to use here. One thing that one of the Republican speakers said, she she insisted that the bill that passed this week is a mainstream approach to regulating abortion. Is it? No, of course not. This law is far more complicated than gestational bans, and the other aspects of the law are not popular at all. Today on the show how North Carolina's new abortion bill became inevitable. Will its path offer a model for Republicans everywhere? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I wonder if it makes sense to start by explaining the importance of North Carolina as an abortion provider after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Like, can you explain what happened in the weeks and months after the Dobbs decision came down in your state? Absolutely. When the Dobbs decision came down, there was a lot of attention on North Carolina because many of our surrounding states in the Southeast are states that either had trigger bans in place, laws that would go into place when Roe was overturned, or were states that were likely to heavily restrict abortion as soon as that became something that was possible. And in the first six months after Dobbs, uh, the Society for Family Planning, which is a professional association, issued a report called the We Count Report, which indicated that North Carolina was one of the top abortion destination states in the country, in part because of its positionality in the Southeast, and that Mm -hmm. abortions were up by 37%. You know, I first started paying attention to what was happening in North Carolina when it came to abortion back in February, because I saw some reporting that despite the fact that North Carolina has a Democratic governor, like local legislators were already saying they were going to try to restrict abortion. And it kind of surprised me because in the midterm election, we'd seen abortion be such a salient issue and really push change in states. People really did not want restrictions on abortion, it seemed. So it was surprising to me that it seemed like politicians in North Carolina were going in another direction. When did you first see this begin to move locally? Long before that. Um, North Carolina is infamously one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Uh, And the election was very consequential in North Carolina. What happened was the state Supreme Court flipped from being democratically controlled to Republican controlled And in fact, the Republican-controlled state Supreme Court has now reversed itself, reversing decisions that they decided only months earlier, purely because it's a new ideological balance on the court. And then when you looked at the state legislature, the General Assembly was within one vote of being a veto-proof supermajority. And what we saw about six weeks ago was one representative, Trisha Cotham, who campaigned and ran for her election on an abortion rights platform, switch parties to become a Republican, giving Republicans a veto-proof supermajority. I have decided to change my party affiliation, joining the Republican Party, and have been welcomed with open arms by my colleagues. And I'm glad to call you all my colleagues. In early April, at a press conference with her new Republican colleagues, Trisha Cotham made her switch official. She explained her choice by casting herself as the victim of Democratic Party bosses. If you don't do exactly what the Democrats want you to do, they will try to bully you. They will try to cast you aside. Cotham's decision here is still largely a mystery. For years, she had been an on-again, off-again legislator, serving in the General Assembly, then dropping out to run for higher office. 
But then that didn't pan out. She got back into the General Assembly in this last election. And reports indicate that she has felt slighted, that she wasn't treated by Democrats as a more senior member. Though, actually, reports from North Carolina indicate that some of um, her narrative is not actually accurate. Uh, But she switched parties um, and basically blamed the Democrats for bullying her and said that because of how the Democrats have treated her personally, that she's switching parties. That's so petty because because she's been an outspoken supporter of abortion rights and, in fact, had campaigned on abortion as an issue, right? Had campaigned on abortion as an issue, as well as campaigning on expanding and protecting LGBTQ rights. She very recently has voted to codify Roe. Uh, In fact, in 2015, when North Carolina was considering passing the 72-hour waiting period, she gave a a passionate speech in the General Assembly talking about her own experience with abortion, which she had because of a medical complication. My doctor told me that this pregnancy would likely not be viable and that if I did not take swift medical action, my life and any hope of future babies would be in severe danger. This decision was up to me, my husband, my doctor, and my God. It was not up to any of you in this chamber. And she talked about how there's many reasons why people get abortions and legislators don't know, and it's not the purview of legislators to be regulating this. Um, As recently as just this like summer, she uh, applied to get the Planned Parenthood endorsement for her election. So it was truly a stunning move for her to switch political parties because she represents a district that very clearly leans Democratic. It's not even a close district. Uh, And so she really has... um, betrayed her constituents. Yeah. So what happened after she flipped? Within a few weeks, it was clear um, that everything had changed. As soon as Trisha Cotham joined the GOP, Republicans in the North Carolina House and Senate got to work, eventually presenting their abortion bill as a modest change, keeping abortion legal during the first trimester. Legislators also touted all the benefits in this bill that might help women care for their kids But Rebecca Kreitzer says the truth of it is that this law is less of a compromise and more of a Trojan horse, an abortion ban that's smuggled inside a bill that initially seemed much more innocuous. The bill, SB 20, is called the Care for Women, Children and Families Act. And Republicans who have been uh, loudly crying out, don't call it an abortion ban, it's not banning abortion, have been talking about how it's doing all of these other great things. Uh, And so, yeah, it's a 46-page bill. It started as an 11-page bill uh, regarding safe haven laws, safe surrender of unwanted infants. So you can leave your baby at a fire station. You can leave your baby at a fire station or a hospital. And this type of law exists in all 50 states. So when this bill was introduced, it was not controversial. It went through the first and the second and the third reading. It got referred to committee. And then two weeks ago, it got um, sent out of committee via a committee report. It meant that the usual terms of debate didn't apply. Instead of letting each member speak for like 30 minutes on the issue, they each only got 10 minutes. 
uh, and it was like highly regulated questioning. Uh, and all of that was possible. And the, the the rapid speed of it to get through in two weeks was only possible because the bill started as this 11-page bill on safe surrender of infants and got changed via a committee report. So it had already jumped through all these hoops that would have slowed it down. It already went through all the regular process. Exactly. Interestingly, and I think this is important for people to know, most Republicans did not see the bill. In fact, the sponsors of the bill didn't see the bill until, you know, just before it became public. For it to go through quickly, people kind of have to be a little unaware of how complicated it is. Yeah. So can we just go through how this bill restricts abortion? Because as you and other people have said, it's not 100 percent right to call it a 12-week abortion ban. There are exceptions, but then also more restrictions on abortion generally. So if you had to do this in like bullet points, mm-hmm. what would you compress it down to? And I, I realize we're talking about a 46-page bill. Right. Okay. So this law would allow in-clinic abortion procedures through 12 weeks. But after 12 weeks, abortions would have to take place in a hospital. It would also ban medication abortions at 10 weeks. The FDA um, and really the scientific evidence indicates that a medication abortion is safe for longer than that, up to like 12 weeks, and that it's not medically necessary to have any in-person appointments. But this law would require that both before abortion procedures and medication abortion, that there be an informed consent process that takes place 72 hours in advance not including holidays and weekends. For medication abortion, you would also have to go back in person to um, obtain the medication. But there aren't just hurdles for patients looking to obtain abortions. There are also hurdles for doctors looking to provide those abortions. Physicians are required to maintain meticulous records and report that information to the state. Oh my gosh, it's so important to point out that the reporting requirements are very invasive. So this law actually requires that um, 11 different pieces of information have to be reported with each report, including the identity of the physician and any referring physician. And this is for any abortion at any time. Any abortion, the um, location, date, and type of any surgical abortion or the home or location where any abortion-inducing drug takes place, the patient's county, state, and country of residence, age, race, the patient's fertility history, including the number of live births, previous pregnancies, and number of previous abortions. So I'm hearing a lot of hurdles to accessing an abortion, but what happens if I'm 13 weeks pregnant in North Carolina or 20 weeks pregnant? I find out about some kind of gestational problem. I can't handle it. I need an abortion, whatever the reason is. What happens if it's because of a fetal anomaly, it has to be um, an anomaly that is, quote, both life-limiting and, quote, universally diagnosable. Uh, if you are getting an abortion because of a fetal anomaly, there would be even more requirements for documentation of what that anomaly is and that it is sufficiently life-limiting. So if there's going to be an abortion for a medical emergency, the provider has to document how sick the person is, what their fetal, you know, what their maternal health risk is. And and something like um, a future maternal health risk would not apply. Yeah, I was really curious about this language about life limiting and how that's a barrier to getting an abortion because it, like life limiting for whom? Like it's it's 
it's more dangerous to give birth than it is to have an abortion. And there are people who would be endangered by continuing a pregnancy. So I think it's worth being really clear that the bill allows for abortion exceptions when there's a life-limiting diagnosis for the fetus, but it does not allow exceptions for abortion when there's a life-limiting diagnosis for the mother. Huh. Supporters of this bill will also talk about how it expands support for families. There is a significant portion of the bill that does stuff like expand parental leave for state workers or expand the amount of money going to childcare for people who need it or expand access to contraception. What do you make of those add-ons here? It's clear what the priority of this bill is. In the 46 pages, about half of it is focused on abortion. In the remaining half, 11 pages are on the safe surrender of infants, which is how the bill started out. This law has one page that establishes a paid leave program, but only for full-time state employees. Uh, there's also half a page about expanding access to childcare. It would also do some other things like expand GPS monitoring of sex offenders and other various things. Uh, but those things are all each on their own, like, you know, sometimes just three sentences, sometimes half a page or one page. Uh, and so for Republican proponents of the bill to say that this law is doing all of these good things for maternal child family health is disingenuous because a lot of the things are just a few sentences, a few paragraphs. It's not a fully fleshed out policy. And it's not a policy that would actually expand benefits to more people. After the break, the anti-democratic lessons other Republicans might learn from this whole affair. Stick around. Earlier this month, legislators in North Carolina passed their abortion bill and waited to see what the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, was going to do about it. The answer? Hold a party. If just one Republican in either the House or the Senate keeps a campaign promise to protect women's reproductive health, we can stop this ban. To much fanfare... The governor held a rally where he publicly vetoed the bill that had been sent to his desk. He also encouraged voters to call their representatives and express their anger, too. But that's going to take every single one of you to make calls, to send emails, to write letters. Tell them to sustain this veto. That's where this week's vote comes in. It explicitly rejected the governor's plea and made this bill law anyway. Tell them to ask the Republican leadership to stop it. Did people call their legislators and say, hey, guys, I, I don't want you to pass this over the veto? Or like, what was that like in the last few days? I'm not privy to private information about how many phone calls people got, but there has been a very you know concerted effort uh, of phone calls and also protests in Raleigh, which is the state capital. There hasn't been a whole lot of polling because it's been so fast, uh, but there's been a little bit of polling out that indicates that the more North Carolinians learn about the law, the less they support it. I just wonder, like, why do legislators in North Carolina 
think that what happened in Michigan won't happen to them. Like in Michigan, we saw kind of a similar situation. Democratic governor, Republicans in the state legislature, abortion became a big, big issue. And all of a sudden, Democrats are running the state legislature and the governor is, you know, maintaining her office. Like to me, I would look at that and say, huh, how do I avoid that happening to me? It could happen here. I mean, as as longtime political watchers know, North Carolina has long been a purple state um, and it has pretty complicated politics in that there um, are some larger cities and areas around universities that are quite, quite liberal and progressive. And then there's other areas that are quite conservative. So I think the Republicans are doing what they can right now, both to make the changes that they want, knowing they could, might not be able to do it in the future, And they're trying to do things to ensure that um, they will be able to retain their power. I'm wondering what you're going to be looking for in the next few weeks and months to measure the impact this legislation is going to have. Like in other states, it's taken a little while to see the impact of abortion restrictions, like see, get the stories of women who have been outside of hospitals, unable to get the care they need, even though they're getting quite ill. How are hospitals and providers in North Carolina preparing? Well, I think it's it's clear that um, as we watch what's happening in other states, that there are many clear examples where people are getting worse, poor quality health care. Um, and it's not just people who are seeking abortions. We're talking about people who are just ha- having complicated pregnancies, which is very common to have complicated pregnancies. So these are the things that will happen in North Carolina The other thing that it's going to affect is it's just going to affect the availability of abortion. Now abortion in North Carolina will only be available for 12 weeks instead of 20. And so that 37% increase in abortions that North Carolina has, you know, been experiencing for the last year now, uh, it's going to be even harder to get those, those few appointment slots in quickly enough. Do you see this as kind of a trial balloon for Republicans nationally who are trying to figure out how to talk about abortion? Like, what is workable? You know, I don't know if there's that much to learn about how to talk about abortion in North Carolina because it happened so quickly. There really wasn't that much talking happening. I think a lesson that other states might learn is that one way to get things through is through procedural anomalies and through, you know, procedural shenanigans uh, to get through unpopular legislation. And I worry that that anti-democratic message is the message that actually will be received. Rebecca, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Kreitzer is an associate professor of public policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Rob Gunther, Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew for now. I'll be back in this feed on Monday. Catch you then.